This morning's reading is in two parts. And the first part is in John chapter 4, verses 27 to 38. And this can be found in page 1067 in the Church Bibles. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, Four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And then we go to John 19, verses 28 to 30. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thanks be to God for his reading. Just stay for a hundred years ago in London at the end of one of the first... Um, Olympic marathon races, uh, this guy here that hopefully is going to appear on the screen, entered the stadium in White City. I won't ask if anybody knows the name of him. An Italian guy called uh, Durando Pietri. Some of Italians with us this morning. Um, he collapsed five times before uh, the officials helped him almost unconscious to cross the finishing line. Sadly, because he was helped, he was disqualified and didn't get the gold medal. But this was a man with a purpose, a purpose to finish the task that he had been set. Not so long ago, in 2004, British gold medal hopeful Paula Radcliffe took part in the marathon. I'm sure you remember. And in many ways sort of split the nation between those who thought um, she should at least have finished the race, she shouldn't have pulled out, um, and those who thought, well, I had sympathised with her, that you know, her mission was to win. And um, anything less than that, you know, she couldn't really accept. And of course, to say it is finished can mean two quite different things, can't it? It can mean, on the one hand, 
I can go on no longer. You know, I am finished. Or it can mean, I have finished it. I've achieved what I set out to do. The last two sayings on the cross we've looked at in this sermon series have been sayings of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And last week, I thirst. Sayings that reflect to the abandonment of the Son, the separation of the Son from the Father that he knew was necessary if the world was to be saved. And of course, God loved the world so much that he sent his son to save the world. But this last thing we're looking at um, this morning, as Jesus is about to die, is not a cry of despair. It is not, I am finished. I can take no more. It's not an expression of weakness that demands our sympathy. It's also not the expression of relief that the sufferings are about to be over, although I'm sure he would have been relieved. But actually it's a cry of victory, a cry which causes celebrations in heaven. It is finished, I've achieved what I came to do. It's a a victory shout that has wide-ranging consequences for us here this morning because it assures us of our eternal salvation. It means that we can gather here this morning confident that whatever wrongs we've done in the past, whatever wrongs we continue to do, as we repent of them, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. What exactly is Jesus referring to when he says it is finished? What has he exactly accomplished? There are three things I want to, to mention this morning. And the first of those is that Jesus finished his mission. His mission was to do the will of the Father, as we heard in that reading earlier on that Marion read for us from John 4. And we looked at this last week a bit when we considered the reason why Jesus said, I thirst. And if you've got your Bibles open, John 19 there. Have a look back at uh, verse 28. That was uh, introduced by saying, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And Jesus' whole life was pointing to this moment. Right back from the beginning when the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, you know, today in the town of David a saviour has been born. Now already then Jesus' mission was was made clear in that description, a saviour. And as he grew up, he would have known that his whole life was pointing to this moment on the cross. There's a famous painting by Holman Hunt that captures this uh, quite beautifully. It's called The Shadow of Death. And here we see Jesus, the, the carpenter in the, uh, the workshop, probably this says Father Joseph in, um, in Nazareth, catching a few rays there. But look behind him, it's, uh, what you see on the wall there is the shadow of the cross. It's a shadow that overshadows his whole life from beginning to end, because this is what he came to do. And we see that throughout the account of Jesus. If you, if you, you know, go through John's Gospel, you see right back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Jesus' mother tells him at the wedding in Cana that the wine has run out, Jesus says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time or my hour has not yet come. He knew that there was an hour to which his life was pointing, but it hasn't come at that moment. In chapter 4, as we said, the mass passage that Marion read out for us, 
The, the passage follows on from the incident we looked at last week where Jesus met this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Jesus says in response to his disciples, thinking he must be a bit hungry, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he continues that a chapter later in chapter 5 where he says, the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. He sent him on a mission. And then today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we turn back to chapter 12. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. And look there at verse 23. Jesus replies to the disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Skipping a few verses on to verse 27, he says, Now... My heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The hour is drawing near. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, those well-known words made clear that his hour was imminent when he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And here on the cross, what Jesus is saying is, your will is done. It is finished. I've done what I came to do, what you sent me to do. And as we looked at last week, Jesus is in command right up to the end. He's not like the person who who commits suicide, who we say takes his own life. Jesus here, it says, lays down his life. He gives it up. And it goes on to say in verse 30, back there in John 19, with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was obedient to death. What an amazing sacrifice. And of course, the pointing to this final moment didn't just begin with the birth of Jesus. It began you know, way back in the Old Testament <coughs> when God's messengers, the prophets, were proclaiming to the people of Israel that one day God would send the Messiah, a descendant of David, a, a suffering servant, but also a servant king. He would send him to rescue them. And so in this moment on the cross, Jesus is able to review the whole scope of prophecy concerning him and say, it is finished. It has come to pass just as my father promised it would. Well, not only did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning him on the cross, but what this moment also signified was the end of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, the the old covenant. Because what Jesus had also finished in this work on the cross was he fulfilled the law. I don't know whether you remember in um, Matthew's Gospel when Jesus came, he said, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. This Old Testament system of uh, priests and sacrifices, uh, the temple, uh, it was something that God set up, but it was a temporary thing. It pointed to something far better. And the limitations of that system are all recorded well in the book of Hebrews. If you want to just turn to to Hebrews with me, to Hebrews chapter 10, page 1208 in your Bibles. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And look what it says here. It says, day after day, every priest stands... And performs his religious duties. 
Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus he's talking about, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The principle of the Old Testament system was that sin needed to be atoned for and uh, what those sacrifices did was in many ways remind people of their sin, remind people that they were falling short of God's law. What they were not able to do was, was take sin away. Yeah, the law could not make people righteous. And that's why Jesus said, you know, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. That meant he would keep the law perfectly, as no other man possibly could. He would take the penalty of sin that all men deserve. A penalty that the demands of the law could be met, that God's justice could be done. And in this moment on the cross when he says, it is finished, he's done just that. He is the lamb who was slain for us. That is why, if you look at Matthew's account, we won't go there now, but it says, after this point, he says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this wasn't just a case of a curtain being badly sewn together. This was a curtain that was 60 feet high. It was four inches thick, and it was ripped apart. It was a curtain that separated the the Holy of Holies, the the, the earthly symbolic dwelling place of God, from the rest of the temple where, where men dwelt, where people dwelt. It signified that people were separated from God by their sin. It was only the high priest who was permitted one time a year to enter into God's presence for all of Israel to make atonement for their sins. And so, The tearing of that curtain, the moment of Jesus' death, dramatically symbolised that his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, was a sufficient atonement for all sins. And it signified that now the way into the presence of God was open for all people who believe, both Jew and Gentile, for all time. The temple and its uh, religious system became redundant as the old covenant gave way for the new, as Christ himself became our high priest, through whom, as we believe, we can have direct access to God the Father. As it says in Hebrews 9, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So he's fulfilled the law, and finally he's finished the work of atonement. Let's try and understand a little bit better what this work of atonement is all about, because I know it's can be quite complex to try and understand. I'm, I'm sure we, guess we all understand the idea of atonement. You're, you're trying to put something right that we've messed up. Uh, if you've ever read the book or seen the film Atonement with uh, Kira Knightley, the, uh, the lead actress in it, you've, you've seen the story of uh, <coughs> excuse me, a girl who, who messed up the lives of two people by a false accusation she made. And she was somebody who tried for the rest of her life to try and put right that wrong that she'd done to try and make amends. And in a sense, that is what the story of the Bible is about. It's about how man's sin, which messed the world up, which messed up God's relationship with man, how that is atoned for. 
Because the, the, the just punishment that God stipulated to Adam for, for rejecting his commands was death. And if the whole of mankind was somehow to be saved from that punishment, then there would have to be somebody who received the punishment on behalf of mankind. Now, of course, that person would have to be perfect. Somebody who could perfectly keep the demands of the law. And the only person who meets that requirement is, of course, Jesus. You know, God himself, who became man in order to give his life for the whole of mankind. The one who took on himself the whole of the sins of the world so that there will be no sin left in us. Now, that doesn't mean that, that sin, there's no longer sin in us. What it means is that the guilt, the penalty for that sin are no longer on us. We don't have to carry that burden. They've been transferred to Jesus, our substitute. The Old Testament law actually contains a striking illustration of how this, this works because on the Day of Atonement that uh, we mentioned earlier, two goats would be taken. One would be killed to make atonement for the sins of the people and the blood of that goat would be sprinkled on what was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. That was the, the gold lid of the, the Ark of the Covenant in which were kept the tablets of the, um, which were written the Ten Commandments. And the high priest would then lay his hands on the head of the live goat and, and would confess over that live goat, goat all the sins of the people. He would put them onto that goat and the goat would then be sent away into the desert, into the wilderness, with all the sins of the people. And that's where we get the, the word scapegoat from. Those sins have been carried off. And that word atonement cover is the same word used to describe Jesus in the book of Romans because as he died on the cross... As he uttered those words, it is finished, he was saying, your sin is atoned for. All your sins have been removed and they've been laid on me. I am carrying all your sins so that you don't need to. As we sang in that last song, the price is paid. Your debt has been cancelled. It is written off. I'm sure uh, some of you here will know what it's like to to get to the point where your mortgage has been paid off. Look forward to that day. And you get a letter from the bank or the building society saying, paid in full, outstanding payments, zero. It is finished. It's for that debt that we have to God to be repaid in full. That we never have to, to repay that ourselves. The justice of God has been satisfied. His wrath has been turned aside. It is finished. Jesus' mission, the law and the prophets, the work of atonement is complete. But as we try and apply the, the, these lessons, I think there are two dangers that we need to try and avoid because um, both of them in different ways undervalue what Jesus achieved on the cross. The first of those is to think that I need to add something to what Jesus did. There's something, you know, I'm somehow not comfortable with the idea that Jesus has done everything for me, you know, that I don't need to do anything. And if we ask ourselves why that might be the case, why do we feel uncomfortable with it? I think there's a few reasons I just wanted to, to suggest, and I think they're all in many ways to do with pride in different ways. Um, I think one of them is that we just don't like to be in debt to anyone. Um, many years ago, when Liz and I were travelling around South America, we stayed at the home of the uh, 
the Bishop of Paraguay and his wife. Lovely couple, uh, very kind, very generous. Um, we actually arrived there before they were there. And as they arrived back, we were busy making a cup of coffee. Um, felt very funny being in their home as they arrived back. But a few years later, we were living in Brazil and we invited them to come and stay with us for a while. And um, I remember coming back from work one day uh, to find the, uh, the Bishop of Paraguay with his uh, feet up on the coffee table, um, a beer in one hand, the remote control in the other, flicking through the, uh, the channels. Now, if I'm honest, I felt probably more comfortable in that situation offering them hospitality than having received it from them. Um, because I suppose it's pride telling me I don't like to be in debt to somebody. Um, you know, I don't mind if somebody's in debt to me. Um, you know, that way I'm sort of more in control. I don't know whether you, you feel like that. And that's often the case with, with Jesus. People don't like to feel in debt to Jesus. So they go beyond simply serving him out of gratitude to actually wanting to, to earn his acceptance, to do something about it. Another reason is maybe we are proud of our Christian service. You know, it's often the case for those who are gifted and talented, um, those who have lots of opportunity to serve God. And it's where the service for God tips over into, surely God will be so pleased with me, but that will help make sure I'm right with him. You know, I know that he did everything for me, but isn't it good what I've done? Surely that counts for something. Now, the flip side of that as well, which is another attitude, is we, we think that actually we've done too much that really needs forgiving. You can't surely forgive everything I've done. I've done so much bad stuff in the past that I can't deserve to have all of that forgiven. You know, maybe, maybe some of it, but for the rest I need to do something myself to, to make up for it. And again, that is a pride that says, I need to contribute something to my salvation. But the Bible says the Father is satisfied with the work of Jesus on the cross. And if he is satisfied, then so should we be too. If you think you can't be forgiven without adding something to what Jesus has done, then you've underestimated the power of the cross. And what these, these attitudes lead to often is a sense of frustration, a sense of um, well, a loss of real joy in our Christian life because we don't feel able to simply enjoy what Jesus has done for us. And it's not a question of feeling, because sometimes we might not feel right with, with God. We, we might not feel that we've been fully forgiven. But we need to trust that God says in his word that Christ's death is sufficient for us. You know, no works are required from us to earn our salvation. All that is necessary is to have faith in what Christ did. The moment you believe in that, the moment your sins are wiped clean the moment you are accepted before God. We can't always trust our feelings, but we can trust God's word. So there's the danger of thinking that I need to add something to what Jesus has achieved. The other danger is to think, if Jesus has done it all, then, well, I can just sit back and take it easy, really, can't I? It's the sort of attitude that says, well, you know, I'm happy to, to sign up to something as long as I don't really have to to get involved. You know, I'm happy to support your missionary work as long as I don't have to be sent prayer letters, you know, or as long as I don't have to give any money to, to that work. Or I'm happy to support the PTA as long as I don't have to go to any meetings or organise any events. In the Christian context, I'm happy to be a Christian, accept Jesus died for me, but 
as long as it doesn't mean I have to worry about, you know, coming to church or getting involved, becoming a member. In short, as long as it means I can carry on life with me being in control. After all, Jesus has done it all for me. You know, I can't add anything to that. And again, that is an attitude that, that doesn't fully appreciate exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Because if we really grasp just what a sacrifice that was, then we can't just go on living without our lives being changed. It changes everything. God has no time for the lackadaisical Christians. If you turn briefly to the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 15. This is uh, words to the church in Laodicea. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Those are words written to Christians, you know, who... They've lost that, that first love. They've, they've become lukewarm in their faith. They've sat back and assumed that it's all been done. And the words here, I'll be serious about your faith. Jesus had an unswerving dedication to do the will of the Father. He wouldn't let anything get in the way of that. Yes, he achieved everything for us in terms of our salvation, but he expects us to, to follow his example in terms of remaining faithful to him throughout our lives, serving him in the way that we can. And that passage we looked at recently from 2 Timothy, as Paul comes to the end of his life, he writes to, to Timothy and he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good faith, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. It's great going to a funeral of somebody who can say the same thing. We were at the funeral of Teresa's mother last week. And in the sadness of that occasion, as you listen to the tributes, you glimpse somebody who had clearly run the race and was ready to receive the prize. Somebody who had finished what God had called her to do. The question, I think, for all of us is, will we, on our deathbeds, be able to look back and say, I've achieved what God wanted me to do. It is finished. I can now receive the crown of righteousness. Or will we think, if only I'd spent less time in myself and more time serving God and serving others. Do we have that same dedication, that same commitment to finish 
the task we've been given. The greatest servants of God are not the ones who have the most time or the most gifts. They're the ones who have the greatest desire. Because when your greatest desire is to finish the task that God has given you in your life on this earth, that will change everything you do. And you will become restless when you realise that you're wasting too much time on meaningless pursuits and not spending enough time with God. It's finished. The price has been paid.